We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Fun Friday edition of the Fun Friday Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Clark, for staying the course, for doing the job, for hanging in there. Anyway, we're glad to have uh, you with us this afternoon as well. Well, today, of course, is Friday, and so on Fridays, we try to lighten things up just a bit. We'll take a look at some of the lighter news. There's certainly lots of heavy stuff going on, and I know you are praying people, so you're taking that up with the one who can actually uh, do something about it. Uh, so we'll uh, we'll return to more serious news on Monday. But today, thought we would start by announcing today happens to be International Sloth Day. International Sloth Day. And I thought in view of... Uh, this reference to the animal, um, not the deadly sin of laziness, uh, which is celebrated on October 20th uh, since 2010. I thought I'd share some of the things you may not know about the sloth. All sloths have three toes on each of their hind legs. Two-toed sloths and three-toed sloths differ in the number of fingers on their front limbs. Who knew? Until 10,000 years ago, South America had a big population of giant sloths the size of elephants. Doesn't it kind of make you grateful that you're around now rather than the very slow-moving sloth of some 10,000 years ago the size of elephants? The giant sloth, uh, let's see, Megalonyx jeffersoni is named after Thomas Jefferson, who delivered a paper on his uh, study of its fossil bones in 1797. Sort of a dignifying uh, reference. Jefferson thus became the only U.S. president to have a sloth named after him. Probably one of the few people on the planet um, who've ever had a sloth named after them. Three-toed sloths are called bradypus, slow-footed. Two-toed are called Colopus, lame-footed sloths. Sloths generally come down from their trees only once a week or so to, well, take care of business, personal business. I uh, I have more in common with the three-toed sloth or a one-eyed um, Kalamata olive than I have with Winston Churchill. That's a quote from Boris Johnson referring to the British prime minister at some point of his long uh, career in uh, in Britain. The top speed of a sloth on the ground is only about 13 feet per minute, but they swim much faster. Now, much faster than 13 feet per minute doesn't mean fast. It just means much faster than that. Sloths in the wild sleep for about nine hours a day, but they rest for um, much of the rest of the time. So they sleep, they wake up, and of course they're exhausted from sleeping and rest much of the rest of the day. When London Zoo sloth Marilyn had a baby in 2015... Um, his sharp claws led to him being called Edward after film character Edward Scissorhands. And there you have it on International Sloth Day. A few uh, facts about the uh, slow-moving creature we are told not to be like. So happy International Sloth Day, Clark. 
it's uh, nice to celebrate with you here today. What are you insinuating there? Only that it's International Sloth Day and that you bear no resemblance, real or implied, I, I to like the sloth. I like to take naps. Oh, I do too. Oh, I love to take naps. <laughs> yeah, but you don't sleep for nine hours a day and then rest the rest of it. Uh, I did when I was single. I loved it. <laughs> wow. I need to revisit my assessment here. Mm. So International Sloth Day is a reminder for you of your single life. <laughs> Apparently it is. <laughs> wow. I uh, One of my favorite references to the sloth came in the movie, um, and I can't remember the name of the movie all of a sudden, but it's the scene where the sloth works at the DMV. And, of course, they move extremely slow, and the pair come up, and they need something done immediately. They're investigating a crime, and, and they're trying to track someone down as quickly as possible because time is of the essence. And the sloth moves extremely slow. He speaks slow. He moves slowly. It's just a hilarious scene. And if you know anything about sloths prior to seeing it, then you can uh, have a good laugh at the whole thing. Anyway, that's my favorite Reference. My least favorite, of course, is the reference in Scripture that says that we're not to become like the sloth, or one might say, like Clark in his single days. So just <laughs> just keep that in mind. Wow. Well, a driver who was distracted by a taco while driving a tractor trailer. Uh, this is on oh, Wednesday. Oh, that's dangerous. Crashed on a Washington State highway, spilling a load of wood chips across the two-lane highway. Now, there are rules these days in both Oregon and Washington about distracted driving. Now, it usually references technology, but in this case, it was a taco that distracted the uh, the driver of a tractor trailer on Wednesday. The unnamed driver was eating a taco while driving when he lost control of the truck, probably trying to control the taco, because there's nothing worse than spilling the contents of a taco on your lap while you're driving. And so sometimes your priorities are immediately skewed because you don't want to have ground beef on your lap. If you're pushing a big rig up the freeway, let it spill in your lap. (laughs) Absolutely. Washington State Trooper Brian Moore said the driver drifted onto a shoulder of the um, Blewett Pass in the Wenatchee Mountains and uh, overcorrected to the point that the truck rolled resulting in wood chips spread across the highway, which was temporarily closed. The tractor-trailer's overturn wasn't the first on the Washington Highway this week. The semi-truck on on Monday uh, also rolled over at the uh, Blewett Pass, leaving 56,000 pounds of red delicious apples strewn across the immediate now that area. that is a tragedy. <laughs> All you had to do is let the public know they would have swarmed in, picked up, Uh, Apple's taking them home, and the whole thing could have been cleared up much more quickly, I'm certain. A new Washington State distracted driving law mainly focuses on handheld electronics. That was implemented by Governor Jay Inslee in July. It was meant to crack down on um, sidetracked drivers. Under the new law, eating is considered a secondary offense and warrants a ticket if a police officer pulls someone over for it. Now, in this case, where an accident actually occurred and you know what the driver was doing, I'm not sure if that means the police officer cannot charge him because he didn't pull him over. But nonetheless, that's a reminder that while the new law took effect in uh, the state of Washington in July, October 1st, the laws changed here in the state of Oregon. So so in uh, Washington then, uh, and maybe in Oregon, you can be pulled over if 
you're eating? Well, I think if uh, it's not just if you're eating, but if it's impairing your ability to drive, I, I think gotcha. that's, okay. that's that's what more. it means by they, secondary. Yeah, they tried to clarify it um, after the law here in Oregon, and it was about as clear as mud. But my understanding is that the act of eating alone is not the issue. But if there's any swerving or it's clear that okay. you are distracted in a way that's hindering your that makes sense. ability to drive. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, October 1st. Uh, the law changed here in Oregon in July in the state of Washington. So keep your hands uh, free and your eyes on the road. We're going to take a break. But already? <laughs> but, but we'll be back. You're already tired? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take sloth. a little nap. You know, it's International Sloth Day, so I'm feeling uh, uh, tireder than I, a wee bit weary. I normally would. Yeah, so I'll take a quick uh, power nap and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Power nap time is over. Yep, I'm feeling refreshed. Ah, today is International Sloth Day. And by the way, um, our, our receptionist Susie pointed out that uh, their unusual idleness is due to metabolic adaptations for conserving, conserving energy. So this applies not only to the, South, the Central and South American mammal known as the sloth, but also many teenage boys all across the fruited plain. <laughs> Aside from their surprising bursts of speed during emergency flights from predators, other notable traits of sloths include their strong body, the ability to swim, and the fact that they host symbiotic algae on their fur. That's a teenage boy all over. Uh, sloths make very good habitat for other organisms, and a single sloth may be home to several species of moths, <laughs> there's, beetles. There's your big one. Yeah. Cockroaches, fungi, ciliates, and algae. So there you have it. International Sloth Day. Thank you, Susie, whose voice, by the way, you hear when you call here at uh, KPDQ and our sister stations, the sweetest woman in America. Just saying. Well, a Twitter user has earned kudos online for discovering a subtle message on KFC's account. That's Kentucky Fried Chicken, for those of you uh, who don't eat fast food. The KFC account follows just 11 users. Five of them are former members of the Spice Girls, and the other six are men named Herb, including Green Bay Packers cornerback Herb Waters, music legend Herb Alpert, it adds up to 11 herbs and spices. Part of the famous secret recipe KFC founder Colonel Harland Sanders touted for his fried chicken, which is finger licking, finger licking, finger licking. Some of you got that, others maybe not. The connection was a note. <laughs> Before my time. Well, no, it's a commercial that's on right now in which a oh. contemporary Colonel Sanders, it's a long story. Wow. Yeah, it. Uh, the connection was noticed wow. on Twitter by a user who goes by the name of Edge. I need a I need a better handle. Of course, I'm not on Twitter, so it wouldn't make much like sense to, to come up with What would you one. like to be? But I mean, this Twitter guy, this Twitter user's name is Edge. What would you like yours to be? You uh, could come up with a really clever name. Yeah, it could be something like uh, uh, something I'll, really I'll, clever. I'll come up with one for you. Uh, that, I'm really afraid that you might. <laughs> But it goes on. He uh, his tweet about it has been shared hundreds of thousands of times on the platform. Now, for all we know, Edge is somebody at KFC trying to let everybody in on the secret so that radio stations like this one and others would actually bring it up. Or that guitarist from U2 has another gig. Yeah, really, from 
being mentioned. Well, the connection was noticed, as I mentioned, by this you, this uh, Twitter user, Edge. His tweet about it was shared hundreds of thousands of times. KFC tells the Associated Press it has been following the 11 herbs and spices for about a month. Oh, what a coincidence. They're following 11 herbs and spices. Edge happens to catch that. He writes about it, and we're talking about it. It's all part of that grand series of events known as coincidences. Anyway, just something to know about uh, KFC. I'm still working on a name for you. Oh, dear. A California restaurant is defending its practice after customers reacted angrily to finding out the eatery reserves Popeye's chicken in two dishes. (laughs) They apparently don't make their own. I probably shouldn't mention a KFC reference in the same segment as a Popeye's chicken reference. As for my part, I, I prefer KFC any day of the week, but that's just me. The controversy at Sweet Dixie Kitchen in Long Beach began when customer Tyler H. posted a review on Yelp that accuses the eatery of reserving fast food from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Before my friends and I got seated at the restaurant, we saw them quickly bring in two large boxes of Popeye's to the kitchen, he wrote. The customer wrote he ordered the fried chicken and waffles, which tasted suspiciously like Popeye's. I kindly asked our waiter how they cooked their fried chicken. After checking, he admitted that they do, in fact, use Popeye's. The manager compensated us for the entire meal and for the deep deception. The restaurant owner, Kimberly Sanchez, responded to the review. We proudly serve Popeye's spicy tenders, she wrote. The best fried chicken anywhere and from New Orleans, which are delivered twice a day. We also, in case you need to know, buy our gumbo from a friend who sells it at a local farmer's market. We promote usually small batch local producers in our menu. The exception is Popeye's. We can't fry at this location. And it the and if the fried chicken I love so much, or rather it is the fried chicken I love so much, and I ate a ton of it, Uh, In the ATL, which is short for Atlanta. So I serve it, she wrote. The owner's response said eatery employees also uh, don't um, mill our own flour or grow our own veggies, she said. The original Yelp post led to a flurry of criticism against the restaurant on the website. People don't expect that you're serving other people's stuff. Sanchez, the owner, said she started serving Popeye's two months ago as ingredients in two Sweet Dixie kitchen menu items, the chicken and waffles and the fried chicken sandwich. I tried Costco chicken, I tried Restaurant Depot chicken, and I uh, then uh, went to dinner at Popeye's, knew this was the chicken we had to use for the store. It's the best chicken, she said. Uh, She's reached out to Popeye's for permission to use the franchise's name on the menu. My kitchen is not set up for frying. We're an old building. Uh, I don't actually have a proper kitchen back there. I love Popeye's chicken. I think it's the best chicken out there, she said once again. She said the criticism has been difficult to handle. I'm in tears at my house, like inconsolable, she went on to say. We didn't do anything wrong. I did something I thought was the best product I could bring in. You don't want to eat it, don't eat it. So it's become a big deal. Because you can't just have, you know, you have Popeye's chicken, I'm surprised. It has to become a big deal. It has to become a major issue, and people have to be offended, and it has to, to, you know, go on for weeks and weeks. So I'm not going to eat Popeye's chicken now. Of course, I don't eat Popeye's chicken, but I want to just kind of jump into the fray. I I need something to be mad about, because people are mad about so many things. I think this is the thing I'm going to choose to be mad about for the rest of the weekend. Okay. I'm, I'm really mad about this. That sounds uh, like something to hold on to. Yeah. Yeah. It's a California restaurant. I'm not planning on traveling, but at least it gives me something to sink my teeth into, so to speak. 
Your new name is Slice. Slice? Yeah, Slice. I kind of like it, but what made you think Slice? Nothing. Just came to me. I was inspired. Slice. slice. Yeah, that's There's my a new lot of different ways you could Twitter use that. handle. Slice. Yeah, Slice. 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 Does and it matter look. that I'm not on Twitter? Does oh, that Oh look, it's Slice. <laughs> well, it kind of sounds rice. It sounds nice. Yeah, I I, I think I like it. Yeah. If ever I go on Twitter, makes you sound a little edgy. Yeah, slice. Well, that, you know, I'm kind of edgy. Slice, kind of, sort of a rounded sort of way. Yeah, <laughs> slice. That's my new Twitter handle. So if ever I'm on Twitter someday, which will probably never happen, and you see slice, it's probably you. not me because I'm not on Twitter. But just think of me. We'll go that because we you don't know what the other slice might be saying, and I don't want to be held responsible for what somebody else who goes on Twitter as Slice says because it's not me because I'm not going on Twitter. I think we've made that perfectly wow, clear. Wow, that just got confusing. <laughs> well, the government of a state in northern India, this will clarify things, is planning a record-breaking lamp display in celebration of one of their holidays. The chief minister of Uttar Pradesh plans to break a Guinness World Record set by jailed Dairy Sasha Saudi Chief Something Ram Rahid Singh song here and now. Lighting 171,000 oil lamps to celebrate the holiday of Diwali. 171,000. And the result? Guinness World Records will make note of it. No one will ever read it, but they can say... We broke the record. Well, the record attempt is part of a series of events planned by the government to celebrate the annual Autumn Festival of Lights. College students and members of their National Cadet Corps will light the oil lamps along a nearly two-mile stretch along the um, Saryu River. Uh, and uh, actually, there's another river and uh, Ram Katha Park. Uh, the governor of the area will present uh, will be present rather for the record attempt alongside the person who's the chief minister whose idea this was in the first place. The original record was set on September 23rd of last year. It featured a display of 150,009 lamps assembled by a group of 1,531 people. This one will exceed that. Uh, Again, 171,000 lamps. Okay, I guess if you need something to do. Chiefs in, um, or rather chefs, really two very different things, a chief and a chef. Two Generally speaking, very yes. different things. Uh, anyway, a chef or a series of them in Cape Verde, they're claiming a Guinness World Record after making a massive pot of stew. The Prime Minister of Cape Verde, Ulysses Correria de Silva, uh, was on hand as a group of more than a dozen chefs made a record-breaking 14,021-pound pot of the traditional stew um, at the ninth Festival of something. We expect it to be a great promotion of Cape Verdean gastronomy, and in particular the Cachupa worldwide. We hope it has a great impact and that uh, through this event we can promote our special and traditional gastronomy that is Cachupa and our country. I know I'm going to be Googling that, uh, Cachupa, or however it's uh, pronounced, and I'll be, I'll be trying to make that at some point before my life ends <laughs> or not. Um, and also getting on Twitter, I suppose. <laughs> to write about it. 1,322 pounds of corn, 220 pounds of chicken, 661 pounds of pork mixed in a large heap of beans and vegetables. More than 30,000 people will have a chance to sample in small bowls this sample of the stew as adjudicators confirmed the record. So there you have it. Another world record for you to disregard.
31 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, 35 minutes. That's 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. This happens to be International Sloth Day, so you have permission to move slowly thoughtfully, and to get lots of rest before the night is through. Well, the New York Hotel announced, um, or rather, a New York Hotel announced the return of one of its most famous limited-time menu items, a gold-topped bagel with a $1,000 price tag. You said this is a popular menu item? Uh, That's by their assessment. Hmm. The Westin New York Hotel in Times Square announced the $1,000 bagel, which had a limited run in 2007, is making a return to the hotel after multiple requests. I'd like names of those who are requesting and uh, tax forms. The Pricey Bagel's toppings include goji berry, infused Riesling jerry, uh, jelly rather, gold leaves, and Alba white truffle cream cheese. Okay. Pound for pound, the white truffle is the second most expensive food in the world next to caviar, the hotel said. So I suppose it's just a... uh, a pres- prestige thing. You can tell people, you know, I spent $1,000 on a bagel and they're supposed to admire you for your extravagance. Well, the hefty price tag includes tax and gratuity, the hotel says. All proceeds from sales of the bagel will be donated to the Holy Apostles Soup Kitchen. Well, there's a silver lining, or rather gold lining in this whole thing. The bagels will only be available from November the 1st until December the 15th, and interested guests are being instructed to order their decadent breakfast foods 24 hours in advance. So you don't have uh, a lot of time to get one, but uh, the Westin New York Hotel will be serving them starting November the 1st. Credit cards accepted. Yeah. I can't imagine spending that much. wonder if you need a bank loan to get one of those. (laughs) You just might. And I wonder, will Guinness be there so that at least there's a record that you you spent money on the thing? And then there's this. A Swedish transport company has given in to the will of people by officially naming a new train, Trainee McTrainface. After a public vote, somebody somewhere had to give in to this <laughs> foolishness. And apparently the Swedish transport company is the first transport company MTR Express, which earlier this year asked readers of Swedish newspaper Metro to vote on a name for the train. And 49 percent of the vote went to Trainee McTrainface, making it the top choice. I think the first mistake is inviting the public to weigh in because people don't take these sorts of things as seriously as perhaps they once did. And you end up with something like Trainee McTrain face. The Stockholm Gothenburg line train was officially given its name this week when it went into service. Officials at MTR Express said that they were resolved to abide by the public's decision in part to avoid the sort of disappointment that resulted when a British polar research ship was not named Bodie McBoatface, despite winning a public poll. We saw pretty quickly that trainee McTrain face was in the lead and the popular option. There was a bit of international attention on the vote, and I imagine that some people were quite delighted to get some revenge for the Bodie McBoat face thing, said the MTR Express marketing chief. A trainee McTrain face joins a fleet of trains named Ingvar, uh, which was dubbed in honor of the TV host Ingvar Oldsberg. Estelle, named after a Swedish princess, and Glenn, a reference to the high number of players uh, named Glenn in the UEFA Cup winning Goatborg soccer team in the 1980s. So apparently they don't care all that much about what they're naming the train. Um, Anyway, so Trainee McTrain face. If you're in Sweden, you might want to check that out. The MTR Express 
Among others, there's the Ingvar, the Estelle, the Glenn, um, also uh, named for their uh, their transport line. Well, a Kentucky man dressed as the Pokemon character Pikachu is accused of trying to jump the White House fence all in the name of making a YouTube video. Because isn't that what we constitute as a real accomplishment these days, making a YouTube video, taking a selfie, something that shouldn't be done in a place that shouldn't be, you shouldn't be, making a video of it, posting it, and you make a name for yourself for a minute or two. Curtis Combs of Somerset, Kentucky, was arrested Tuesday morning, charged with unlawful entry. An arrest affidavit says Combs was dressed as Pikachu, told authorities he wanted to become famous and had planned to post a video of it on YouTube. The affidavit filed in D.C. Superior Court says Combs jumped a barrier on the outer perimeter of the south grounds of the White House complex and was quickly arrested. Combs told uh, police he expected to be arrested and had researched D.C. charges and previous jumpers, hoping that he could get the video made first. He pled not guilty on Wednesday. His attorney declined comment, and it's not clear what uh, charges will will be filed, uh, or rather what uh, penalty will be applied, Uh, but he has been charged with... uh, Um, unlawful entry into an area that he was not welcome, all in the name of making a name for himself, a desire to be famous. Hmm. Everybody wants to be famous. Well, a lot of people do. A teen was pulled over by police while on her way home from school while wearing a face full of Shrek makeup. Twitter user Hey Bay, okay, shared and a photo slice. of herself. <laughs> showed a photo of herself because wasn't that what it was all about? Taking a picture of yourself, <laughs> of having a story, posting it, <laughs> and becoming famous. Anyway, she was made up to look like the titular green ogre from the series uh, DreamWorks animation films. Okay, so I got pulled over on my way home from makeup class, she wrote. Hey Bay didn't provide any further details about the encounter with the traffic police, but said she was so scared. The tweet received about 250,000 likes, was retweeted about 60,000 times. The teen story reached Florida's Pasco County Sheriff's Department, which joked that they were not the ones responsible for stopping her. But can I f- confirm it was not us, but we sort of wish it had been, he went on to say. So she had her uh, not even really 15 minutes, but all those um, views and likes and so on. You can say that uh, the Shrek girl, whose name nobody really knows, <laughs> is famous. So there you have it. I hope it was worth it for her and others. You know, we're living in a time when um, there's a lot of division, derision, and so on. And I, I was inspired. I was heartened by this next story because it tells us that, like Rodney King once said, couldn't we all just get along? Can't we all, like Mr. Rogers might have once said, couldn't we all just be friends? Residents of a town in India captured video of the unusual friendship between a cow and a wild monkey that visits the bovine every day. It's possible, ladies and gentlemen. Locals in this area of Haryana said the monkey comes to visit the cow every day in the evening near a taxi stand in the town. The video recorded of one of the pair's recent hangout sessions shows the monkey lying flat on the cow's back as it grazes. Locals said the monkey first started visiting the cow about three months ago and has since been making daily trips to spend a few hours with his bovine friend, also known as Best Buddy. So see, ladies and gentlemen, it's possible. That just kind of brings a little tear to my eye. I saw the picture of the monkey on the back of the... (laughs) Very touching. Always these weird animal stories. A few weeks ago into... uh, Rather, a few weeks into CIA training, a Labrador Lulu began 
she began to show signs that she simply wasn't interested in detecting explosive odors. I mean, are the dogs, are they polled? Are you interested in this kind of work? Would you like to do this? Did you have other plans? Some people just aren't cut out for the realities of a high-pressure work environment, and it would seem the same goes for dogs. Lulu, the Labrador's handler, had high hopes for her becoming the CIA's latest bomb-sniffing talent, but it was not meant to be. It started out well, according to the uh, pup date uh, on the CIA's website, but soon started to go downhill. A few weeks into training, Lulu began to show signs that she simply wasn't interested in detecting explosive odors. The blog post said Lulu was no longer interested in searching for explosives. Even when they had uh, they could motivate her with food and play to search, she was clearly not enjoying herself any longer. Well, the post went on to say that the mental and physical well-being of the sniffer dog in the CIA's is the CIA's priority. So they made the extremely difficult decision to do what's best for Lulu and drop her from the program. So it's what's in the best interest of the service dog. But it's not all bad news, as handlers have the option to adopt dogs who are dropped, as Lulu has been. Lulu now has a new home and spends her days chasing rabbits and squirrels in the garden, much less stressful. It's not clear whether Lulu simply wasn't up to the challenge of sniffing out bombs or whether it was all part of a cunning plan to never have to go to work. I'd be interested in knowing. Either way, she's happy, and so is her handler, and the CIA can now focus on its top dogs, of which Lulu is no longer bomb sniffing dogs again how do you find out if a dog is interested can't exactly ask them but lulu i guess (laughs) (laughs) demonstrated what what you do you just simply don't cooperate 45 minutes after four o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show on a fun friday afternoon we'll be back you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq we're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program and otherwise just weighing in from time to time. Today, by the way, is International Sloth Day, and we're encouraging you to take full advantage of the opportunity to move a bit more slowly as the day draws to a close. As far as research goes, it sounds pretty intense, pumping the stomach of 500-plus alligators, live and alert ones at that, it was part of James Nifong's study on whether American alligators on the Atlantic and Gulf coasts eat sharks. Apparently, we needed to know that. And the answers, answers rather, might surprise you. The answer? Yes. A small variety of sharks, that is, but a press release calls it the first scientific documentation of a widespread interaction between the two predators. In fact, the Kansas State University researcher tells National Geographic that when he first broached the alligator expert the question of whether alligators eat sharks. Some of them thought he was kidding. Well, Naifong wasn't kidding. And he found that in addition to the expected prey, crustaceans, fish, and wading birds, uh, per his study in uh, Southeastern Naturalist, he documented alligators eating a lemon shark, a nurse shark, and a bonehead shark. Oh, I guess it's a bonnet head. What's the difference? Along with an Atlantic stingray. This, even though sharks and rays are not freshwater creatures, which puzzled me somewhat. Well, Naifong, he explains it's not uncommon for sharks to enter freshwater, where opportunistic alligators then pounce. GPS trackers also found the gators wade into estuaries where the two types of water mix and where shark nurseries can be found. But it may be a a two-way street, rather, says uh, Naifong, the scientist. It's really about size dynamic. It's a small shark swim. 
uh, swims by an alligator and the alligator feels like it can take the shark down, it will. But we also reviewed some of old stories about larger sharks eating small alligators. So I guess it's not as surprising as one might imagine. Uh, but during um, Shark Week, something to add to your knowledge and understanding of the species. A California city is plagued by sea lions. Um, they spent about $200 on a pack of plastic coyotes to deter the animals from intruding in the harbor, something we might want to consider in Astoria and other places here on the Oregon coast. Newport Beach officials said they have uh, been moving the eight decoy coyotes to various locations around the city's harbor each day to keep intrusive sea lions from uh, climbing up on the docks and boats. We're moving them around on a regular basis around the harbor where they are known problem areas, notifying the dock or boat owners. Uh, the city said the eight plastic coyotes they purchased for about $200. The statues appear as though the wild canines are about to pounce on their prey. Uh, the scheme went into action about, um, or rather, after numerous complaints about sea lions damaging boats, causing noise uh, with their loud barking. And again, here in Oregon, and I suspect in Washington as well, we're very familiar with that um, that possibility. Uh, the scheme went into action after these complaints. We don't recommend anyone get near a sea lion or try to befriend them or feed them. That's against the municipal code as well. But you do have to be careful in what actions you take. Loki went on to say um, it, it, the idea came from the Newport Harbor Yacht Club, which had previously reported success with using fake coyotes to ward off sea lions. And we'll see how that works in the California uh, Newport Beach city. And uh, perhaps it holds some promise here in Oregon where they can be a real problem for all the same reasons that were uh, cited in the California story. A Florida woman um, turned heads by taking her pet chicken out on the water to go paddle boarding. Now, there's a lot of room on a paddle board, just her and her chicken. The Florida Keys and Key West, a page show run by the Monroe County Tourist Development Council, shared the photos of she and her pet chicken, Loretta, enjoying a ride together in um, uh, one area of the town. Some canine-craving paddlers take their dogs along for the ride. Key's resident Carla Venezia, however, takes her one-year-old pet, Loretta, the chicken. <laughs> it's a Rhode Island uh, red chicken along for the uh, Johns. A post on Facebook page uh, shows the image. Uh, Venezia says that Loretta has no fear of being out on the water. Loretta is very curious and follows us around the yard and Living in the Florida Keys, we like to get out on the water, so it only seemed natural to us to take Loretta paddleboarding and boating and things that we do with our dog. Well, wild chickens are common in the Florida Keys and Venezia. She believes the proximity to the water helped inspire Loretta's love of paddleboarding and other activities. I'm not sure how you tell when a chicken loves something. Yeah, they, how do you? You put them on something and they either stand there because there's no place else to go. I, you know, is it smiling? What? How do you know? Loretta seems to enjoy water-related activities, she goes on to say. In addition to paddleboarding, we've taken her out boating for sunsets, and she always seems to have a great time. What does a chicken do when they're having a great time? Venezia told a local news outlet that Loretta, the chicken, is a great companion, and their uh, water-based excursions have given her a new appreciation for her home. Of course, we don't know any of this. We're just assuming. (laughs) A paddleboarding is very calming, says the uh, owner, Benizia, and I like hanging out with Loretta, she said. She's an awesome pet to have. So for us, I think coming out here and getting to enjoy the beautiful sunset is what makes living in the Keys so special. 
Um, apparently, Loretta was not consulted for the interview, and we're just going to have to take Venezia's word for that. Apparently so. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure how you tell when an animal is enjoying something or like... At least a chicken. Yeah, I mean, just, okay, here I am. What am I, you know, I can't go to the right or the left or I'll be in the drink. So I just stand here and wait until you take me back somewhere else. Again, I'm not sure how you tell what a chicken likes or doesn't like. But there's some uh, some additional research. Study finds, it's a research studies um, uh, column. Squirrels use sophisticated techniques to separate nuts by type, according to the study, and by size. Some squirrels go a little nuts when it comes to sorting their acorns, a new study <laughs> finds. Researchers at UC Berkeley observed the behavior of 45 nearby fox squirrels over a two-year period, finding that they use what's known as a chunking behavior, organizing items into various smaller subsets in order to better manage the overall collection to categorize their various nuts. Now, we have a couple of squirrels that um, spend most of their time in our backyard hiding uh, nuts hither and yon, digging little holes in my flower pots and other places. And it's always interesting to find uh, nuts when you're digging around in the yard because, you know, they were left there by one of our little squirrel companions. This is notable, they say, because humans also use chunking techniques, although generally for storing information, whether the data is of a spatial, linguistic, or mathematical variety. Taking your, e- or taking your email, for example, and dividing the messages into various folders could be considered a form of chunking. Fox squirrels use this strategy to divide the nuts they gather over a year between 3,000 to 10,000 into the researchers' terms, subfolders, one for each type of nut. Well, this is the first demonstration of chunking in a scatter hoarding animal, which a squirrel is, and also suggests that squirrels use flexible strategies to store food depending on how they acquire the food, say the lead um, researchers at the university. The researchers believe that this idiosyncratic behavior allows squirrels to both remember where the specific morsels are and to hide other treats from animals that um, uh, could steal them. Squirrels may use chunking the same way you put away your groceries. You might put fruit on a shelf and one shelf, vegetables on another. Then when you're looking for an onion, you only have to look in one place, not every shelf in the kitchen. Uh, the study a senior author says, well, these findings were discovered through the study of principal experiments in which the squirrels examined uh, were sub, uh, subjected to a variety of conditions relating to the locations and types of nuts provided. So as you're watching the uh, squirrels scurry around, you know that they're actually thinking about more than you might imagine. Avoiding getting hit by a vehicle is certainly one of them, but also placing carefully their nuts according to size and category and perhaps accessibility. Chunking, they call it. Chunking, yeah. Great, great uh, term there. Yeah. And what would a fun Friday be without at least one story about, well, an Australian snake catcher? Of course. The snake catcher shared a video of an unusual capture at a home where a snake was found resting in a family's linen closet. Really? Is there no safe place? Stuart McKenzie of the Snake Catcher 24-7 Gold Coast posted the video to Facebook showing the capture he performed at a home in Mount Mellum, Queensland. Again, we're talking Australia, not here. The video shows McKenzie removing the uh, tree snake from a linen closet. Now, the linen cupboard is known for holding sheets and towels and all sorts of things. But the last thing you expect is to see, rather, is when you open up your cupboard door, and apparently it had a door on it, is a snake staring back at you. Well, this common tree snake must have uh, come inside to escape the wind and the rain. Tree snakes are pros and uh, squeezing through tight gaps and entering the house. They're commonly seen around homes as they are often in search of geckos 
and frogs to eat, which is precisely why I don't keep either geckos or frogs at my home, fearing that a snake might come for a snack. Is that the only reason? That's the only reason. (laughs) The time is 5 o'clock. We've got news and traffic at the top of the hour, but hey, we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. Second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. If you've just joined us, welcome. Seven minutes after five o'clock is the time. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today, if you did not know, is International Sloth Day. And so we are celebrating the sloth, um, the one that's found in Central and South America, not the sloth that's, you know, the person referenced in Scripture as not being a flattering title. All sloths have three toes on each of their hind legs. Two-toed sloths and three-toed sloths differ in the number of fingers on their front limbs. Bet you didn't know that. Um, South America had a big population of giant sloths the size of elephants a couple of millennia ago. The Well, more than a couple. The giant sloth um, is named after Thomas Jefferson, who delivered a paper on his study of the fossil bones in 1797. Uh, Jefferson thus became the only U.S. president ever to have a sloth named after him. Wouldn't you like to have a sloth named after you? Well, sloths generally come down from their trees only once a week or so um, to take care of personal business. Um, Said Boris Johnson to Winston Churchill, or rather of Winston Churchill. I have more in common with a three-toed sloth or a one-eyed Kalamata olive than I have with Winston Churchill. So the sloth makes it into history once again. The top speed of a sloth on the ground is only about 13 feet per minute, but they swim much faster. Now, again, that's not fast, but it's faster than 13 feet per minute. Sloths in the wild sleep for about nine hours a day, but they rest for much of the rest of the time. And when the London Zoo sloth Marilyn had a baby in 2015, his sharp claws led to him being called Edward after the film character Edward Scissorhands. So now, as you're announcing over the dinner table that today is International Sloth Day, you'll have a few little uh, fun facts to share with your family about the whole affair. Happy International Sloth Day. Well, speaking of the Wild Kingdom, this out of the New York Times, so it must be true. Can a fish be depressed? That's the question. This question has been floating around my head ever since I spent a night in a hotel across from an excruciatingly sad-looking Siamese fighting fish. His name was Bruce Lee, according to a sign beneath his little bowl. This is a quote from Heather Murphy, writing for the New York Times on fish depression. There we were trying to enjoy a complimentary Bloody Mary, she says, on the last day of our honeymoon, and there was Bruce Lee, totally still, his lower fin grazing the clear faux rocks at the bottom of his home. When he did finally move just slightly, I got the sense that he would prefer to be dead. It's amazing to me how people can just read the chicken likes to be on the water. The fish was unhappy. The pleasant woman at the front desk assured me that he was well taken care of. Was I simply anthropomorphizing Bruce Lee and correctly assuming his lethargy was a sign of mental distress? When I sought answers from scientists, I assumed that they would find the question preposterous, but they did not. In fact, not at all. She goes on. It turns out that not only can our guild friends become depressed, anthropomorphizing, I had to try to get that right, but some scientists consider fish to be a promising animal model for developing antidepressants. New research, I would learn, has been radically shifting the way that scientists think about fish cognition 
building a case that pet and owner are not nearly as different as many assume. The neural chemistry is so similar that it's scary, says uh, a professor at the Department of Biological and Environmental Sciences at Troy University in Alabama, where he's working to develop new medications to treat depression with the help of tiny zebrafish. We tend to think of them as simply organisms, but there is a lot we don't give fish credit for, he says. Now, I know you were thinking about uh, getting a fish for your daughter. Oh, no, we got one a year ago. You did get one. Tell me, how does does, a fish look? Happy, sad. Oh, he he died. Content- you, I oh, told I'm you about sorry. this. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I didn't mean to bring it up. Yeah. I, I know that's painful. He was not doing well uh, early in the year. Uh huh. And uh, you know he was hanging around, looking depressed, on the bottom of the tank. Uh, and eventually, one day, that's was, where we found him. Uh, I'm so sorry. I didn't I think he might have been caught up in the water and floating around, that lifeless, stiff body, just when the filters. So you paid so little attention to him that you didn't realize he'd been dead for some no, time. No, actually, I paid saying? so much attention to him. I think I overstimulated that poor fish. Oh, what did you do? Tap on the glass? I put was too always much food. Uh, I worried about how much food uh, the girls were giving him. I saw how that has gone. I found rotted food in the tank, which is not good because that causes yeah. the the water to go bad. And, you know, I was always having problems with keeping the, the temperature heated properly. Mm-hmm. So that poor fish was always having his water changed out. And I think he just got too much of attention. He said, that's enough. I'm finished. Well, let's see what Dr. Pittman says. Again, yeah. I apologize for bringing it up. I know it's a painful subject, and I would not My daughter keeps it. asking when our cat's going to die so that she can have <laughs> another fish. Because Lisa, my wife, told her that we're not going to do two pets in the house at the same time. <laughs> so now she wants the cat gone. Yeah, because my <laughs> wife hates the cat. She hates the cat. Well, the cat is not disciplined. I think you should make that point. It's not that your wife hates cats. She does not like this cat. It's not that I haven't tried to instill stuff in that cat, but she was a feral animal. And the fact that she's as tame as she is now 16 years later, she's lived a long time, is impressive to me. But, yeah, she's... He's living on borrowed time, let's put it that way. (laughs) My wife is the kind of person who'd probably leave the front door open, and if the cat <laughs> ran away, she would not feel bad. Oh, like, well, look, look what, what happened. happened. <laughs> exactly. Well, Dr. Pittman of Fish says he likes working with them, in part because they're so obvious about their depression. Okay, even Clark was able to figure that out. He can reliably test the effectiveness of antidepressants with something called the novel tank test. A zebra fish gets dropped in a new tank, just like Clark did with his now deceased fish. <laughs> if after five minutes it is hanging out in the lower half, it's depressed. Wow, you read your fish pretty clearly. If it's swimming up top, it's usually its usual inclination uh, when exploring a new environment, then it's not. So there you go. That's not entirely accurate, though, because fish, if they get dropped into a new tank, especially if there's other fish in there, are not they're going to hang out by themselves this toward the bottom. This is a scientist, Clark. Well, I'm telling you as someone who used to keep fish. A scientist. That, okay. He says the severity of the depression can be measured by quality of time at the top versus the bottom, all of which seem to confirm my suspicions about Bruce Lee. Again, the writer of the New York Times article says, pointing out that there was a fish that seemed depressed at the hotel they stayed in for their honeymoon. All of this, of course, may sound fishy of any of the one of 
in six people who has experienced clinical depression. How could a striped minnow relate to what you're going through? Is depression the right word? Well, scientists have used animals like mice to study emotional problems for decades. The relevance of those models to human experience is sketchy at best. There's the obvious issue of we cannot ask animals how they feel. Uh, There is a heated debate in the fish research community about whether anxious or depressed uh, is a more appropriate term. Uh, But what has convinced Dr. Pittman, I quoted earlier, and others over the past 10 years, is watching the way the zebrafish lose interest in just about everything. Food, toys, exploration, just like clinically depressed people. So there you have it. Toys, really? Yeah, do do you put toys in a... No. You can put stuff in there that entertains you, but it doesn't entertain the fish, really. I I can't imagine that fish would be anything other than bored in a tank. I mean, what do you do? And, you know, they're not always going to hang out at the top if there's water turbulence from the filters. Here's here's a way to tell if a fish isn't depressed but stressed, Uh because that's – is if they're hanging out – at the bottom, which is not their normal behavior. If they're used, to, if you're used to seeing them swimming around, and they usually do that, if they're just hanging out on the bottom a lot, yeah. there's probably a problem then. But not if you just drop them in a new tank. That's yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to write to. Uh, do you want to write a few of those things I'm down? I'm going to write to Dr. Pittman and let him know because clearly he doesn't he doesn't get it. Yeah. Uh, well, I put that uh, note in. Is this a degree a you can get paper. in fish psychology? Because <laughs> I don't know. Is that a male diploma a, or something? Take a break while I write this note to Dr. Pittman. 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. Oh, by the way, today's program brought to you by Zero Res. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, in which... We take a look at the lighter side of the news. And in the interest of science, we're going to continue our effort to better understand the natural world. Life is not so different beneath the ocean waves, we're now being told. Bottlenose dolphins use simple tools. Orcas call each other by name and sperm whales talk in local dialects. Many, um, let's see, uh, cetaceans. I'm not sure what a cetacean is, but they live in tight knit groups and spend a good deal of time at play. That much scientists know, but in a new study, researchers compiled a list of rich behaviors spotted in 90 different species of dolphins, whales, and porpoises, and found that the bigger the species' brain, the more complex, indeed, the more human-like their lives are likely to be. This suggests that the cultural brain hypothesis, the theory that suggests our intelligence developed as a way of coping with large and complex social groups, may apply to whales and dolphins as well as humans. Of course, the other explanation might be that we were carefully and uniquely designed, but we'll just see what the scientists have to say. The researchers gathered records of dolphins producing signature whistles for dolphins that are absent. Writing in the journal Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, the researchers claim that complex social and cultural characteristics such as hunting together, developing regional dialects, and learning from observation are linked to the expansion of the animal's brains, a process known as something I will not uh, attempt to pronounce. The researchers gathered records of dolphins playing with humpback whales, helping fishermen with their catches, and even producing signature whistles for dolphins that are absent, suggesting the animals may even gossip. Seems like we get a little something and then we kind of go a little far with it. Yeah. Another common behavior was adult animals raising unrelated young. There is uh, the saying that it takes a village to raise a child, and that seems to be true for both whales and humans, says Michael 
something, an economic psychologist and co-author of the study at the London School of Economics. Like humans, the cetaceans, and I guess this is what all of them, this group belongs to, a group made of, of dolphins, whales, and porpoises, are thought to do most of their learning socially, uh, of their, yeah, most of their learning socially rather than individually, which could explain why some species learn more complex behaviors than others. Those predominantly found alone or in small groups had the smallest brains, the researchers said. Now, that could be by design, but we'll see what they say. Luke Rindell, a biologist at the University of St. Andrews, who was not involved in the study, uh, but has done work on sperm whales and their distinctive dialects, warned against anthropomorphizing and making animals appear to be like humans. Thank you very much. I'm glad somebody said it. There is a risk of sounding like there is a single train line with humans at the final station and other animals on their way of getting there. The truth is that every animal responds to their own uh, pressures, he says. There is definitely a danger in comparing other animals to humans, especially with the data available. But what we can say for sure is that this cultural brain hypothesis we tested is present in primates and cetaceans. So apparently we are similar in terms of how we relate to one another with the whales, the dolphins, and the porpoises. Or the porpoise. 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 Pork pie? What are you saying? Pork pie. Slice. <laughs> what a great Pork handle pie. that would be for you. It would be if ever I had sense enough to use it. Some flowers actually create blue halos to say hello to foraging bees. Speaking oh. of anthropomorphizing things, the flowers are saying, hello, bees. Here we are. Listen to what you just spit out there. Can right. you say that word again? Anthropomorphizing? Yes. <laughs> wow. Maybe we'll just call you dictionary or <laughs> professor. Some flowers have found a nifty way to get the blues. Uh, they create a blue halo, apparently, to attract the bees they need for pollination, scientists reported. Bees are drawn to the color blue, but it's hard for flowers to make that color in their petals. Uh, instead, some flowers use a trick of physics. They produce a blue halo when sunlight strikes a series of tiny ridges on their thin, waxy surfaces. The ridges alter how the light bounces back, which affects the color that one sees. The halos fearfully, wonderfully made. And then the rest of creation, it's pretty amazing. The halos appear over pigmented areas of the flower, and people can see them over darkly colored areas if they look from certain angles. But you can't see them from every angle or all the time. The halo trick is uncommon among flowers, but many tulip species, along with some kinds of daisies and peony, are among those that can, uh, can do it. Uh, according to the Cambridge University in England's uh, scientists. In a study published uh, earlier this week by the journal Nature, uh, the scientists Moiraud and others analyzed the flower surface. They used artificial flowers to show the bumblebees can see the halos. And accompanying uh, commentary said uh, the paper shows how flowers that aren't blue can still use the color to attract bees. Further work should be done to see whether the halo also attracts other insects, according to... Uh, uh, Dimitri something of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at La-, La Jolla, California. So kind of an interesting thing that flowers do to attract their friends, mm-hmm. the bees. Well, a mother in England is under under fire for reportedly requesting cash instead of presents for her uh, <laughs> nine-year-old son's birthday. <laughs> when did that happen that we now... We now tell people what to get us. There's, first of all, the presumption that you're going to get me something. And I suppose if you're having a birthday party there, it's a fair assumption. But then you start telling people what they should get. Now, a wedding, that might be a little bit different because you're setting up household and people would like to know 
you know, what you need to set up household. But it's really interesting to me, the shift away from just graciously receiving a gift given in, Thank you know, you out of friendship and affection to and actually telling people what underwear. to do. I love it, Aunt So this mother, Joyce. <laughs> this mother uh, she is under fire for requesting cash instead of presents for her nine-year-old boy. Now, this is a kid. You go to a kid's party, you get a kid, kid stuff. And I kind of get the idea. She did, maybe doesn't want a whole lot of stuff. She wants something meaningful or useful that she will purchase for the son on your behalf. Well, uh, her name, she's from Stockport. Her name is um, Paramida Sarkar. Uh, she uh, lives in a town in Greater Manchester, England. She recently launched a crowdfunding page on just giving so that she and her husband could buy her son uh, something that would be treasured. Uh, There's no party without presents, but afterwards we are left with boxes of Lego every year, which stop getting played with, she says, speaking uh, to the son. They get piled up in boxes and we run out of space to store all the board games, sometimes duplicate games. Instead of gifts, she wants guests to contribute, not donate, Contribute about $20 to buy a gift that her soon-to-be 10-year-old son would appreciate. So the son would get one thing, handpicked by the mother, but uh, given by a whole crowd of people, assuming anyone responds. Uh, I can then buy something that my boy would actually appreciate and treasure over a long period of time. This is simply to reduce the clutter and buy something really useful. Addie's parents say they already plan to travel to Disney World in Florida as part of their gift to him. Sarker said friends have been welcomed to the idea, uh, but she is apprehensive of circulating it at her son's school as I don't want to uh, feel judged. I'm hoping they'll be positive when they see it and uh, take it up. Well, the Just Giving page, which raised about $120 since it was started last week, has been slammed online, some calling Sarker and her husband a disgrace as parents. That's a little overboard. I can't believe people have actually donated to this, one person wrote. I have two kids' birthdays, both in January, straight after Christmas, and guess what I pay for all their presents myself? Think this is cheeky. Uh, What are your thoughts on uh, mom saying no gifts, just cash, and by the way, I'll pick out the gift? Actually, I want to go to something that she mentioned Mm -hmm. um, about going to Disney World. So they've done studies on this, and what they have found is that, and this probably isn't going to surprise you, I don't think it's a new study, but they have found that the thing that people treasure more than things as gifts are experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's all I'm going to say about that. So does this have anything to do with what you were planning to do for me for Christmas? Is that what this is about? Is that where this is going? I'm going to take the day off. (laughs) And that will be my (laughs) That'll be your experience. No Clark for the day. You're welcome. As a matter of fact, let's take a break now. Merry Christmas to me. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think And you people... know what? It's a gift I like, too. So. <laughs> I think people are a bit overwhelmed with the stuff that comes with celebrations. Yeah. So I get the idea of it. But I, I also kind of question this presumption that, I don't know, I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah. For my boy. Yeah, that's a little bit It might be a different approach to dealing with it. I don't know. Okay, I, I have no idea what's going on in the background, but I feel compelled to leave. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton Engineering. Pushing just, buttons. Just for the record, um, cash, gifts, whatever is, is just fine. Your absence um, would be a, a loss rather than a gain. Oh, so. well, how about that? I'm just looking to my future. 
How would you How would you like to take care of our kid for a couple weeks? Oh, that'd be fun. <laughs> <laughs> she's a little doll. She's quite the character, your little girl. Oh, she is. Yeah, she's a real... Oh, she is. <laughs> in every way that's good. She's got a little bit of that from her dad, I think. Yeah, she does. In fact, it's interesting. Um, every once in a while, I will see her in you. You'll do or say something, and I think, ah, oh, that's oh, where she gets it from. That's funny. She's a... She's Quite a little character. Well, a South Carolina woman, um, a woman's message in a bottle finally found its way to shore nearly three decades after she first wrote it. It's kind of interesting. Miranda Chavez, she um, shared a photo of the letter, which she placed in a glass bottle and cast off the shore of Edesto Beach in 1988 after a couple in uh, Georgia discovered the 29-year-old message. The most amazing thing just happened. I received a message on Facebook where Linda Shouse Humphreys found a message in a bottle that I put in the ocean at Edesto Beach in September of 1988. I was eight years old, Chavez said on Saturday. She found it in Sapalo um, Island, Georgia, and is sending it to me. Well, Chavez has long forgotten about the letter, which she assumed was swallowed in a hurricane, Hurricane Hugo, less than a year ago after she sent it off, or year after she sent it off, rather. Much to her surprise, Linda Humphreys and her husband David found the letter just 90 miles down the coast after their home uh, state of Georgia had been hit by Hurricane Irma. Uh, It really does confirm the whole six degrees of separation theory, Chavez said. I believe everything happens for a reason, which is an interesting statement I'd like to pick apart someday. Of course, everything happens for a reason. It implies that it happens for a good reason, but sometimes it happens because you've been foolish. And anyway, that's a whole other subject for a whole other day. But Humphreys managed to track Chavez down, despite the fact that the address she wrote on the letter no longer exists. Uh, that was so long ago, Chavez said, of her childhood home in an interview with CBS News. It would be pretty uh, difficult to find me. Chavez added that in addition to being reminded of the 29-year-old letter, the experience also helped her reconnect with several of her former classmates. I lost contact with all those people when I moved from that town, she said. Not only have I made new friends like Linda and David, but I've also been able to reconnect with people that she knew way back then when she was just an eight-year-old girl. Kind of a neat story. And then there's this. An Ohio woman said that she was shocked, shocked, I say, to open her direct TV bill and discover that she owed the satellite TV service nearly $185,000. Oh, <laughs> that's a lot of pay-per-view. Angela Mixon-Smith said she nearly had a heart attack when she opened the bill, saw the $184,530.67 balance. I mean, my chest got heavy, she told the local television. St- I had to get some water. I don't drink. I was ready to drink, she said. <laughs> Mixon-Smith said she signed up for a promotional offer in April to bundle her a direct TV service with a new cell phone plan with AT&T, which merged with the satellite TV service in 2015. I know I don't have that kind of money, she said, and since April, there's no way. Well, Mixon Smith said she's been having trouble with the service issue and uh, confusing Bill ever since she signed up for the promotional offer. They don't have everything together, she said. AT&T, they just... Uh, don't have it together. Well, a spokesperson for the company said that the company was looking into the issue, apologizing for the billing error that occurred. And yes, it was a billing error. Uh, we reached out to the customer to resolve the issue, said their spokesperson. Meanwhile, Mixon uh, Smith's account was credited by uh, Wednesday afternoon for the uh, unusually high sum, but she said she still wants the company to address her other concerns. I just want them to straighten out my service, she said. But... Uh, there was an error with a hundred and eighty-five thousand dollar bill. Wow! Yeah, that would have been a little bit um, 
would have been a little bit rough. Uh, Public works crews have repaired a broken water main that caused a geyser to erupt from the ground in front of the New York City home. The owner of the home um, uh, told Staten Island Advance, their local paper, that a powerful stream of water began pounding the front of the house Wednesday morning, breaking several windows. We're talking about a pretty powerful geyser. The front lawn caved in. The water from the broken pipe shot about 15 to 20 feet into the air directly toward the house. The geyser eventually subsided, but water continued to pour out of the hole as emergency crews arrived on the scene. About two dozen homes in the neighborhood were without water. The office of borough president, Joms Odo, said that the repairs were completed by early Thursday morning. The repairs to the water line, the repairs to the yard and the home, well, that's another matter. Well, a fatberg, that's what they're calling it in Baltimore, a fatberg that may have taken beyond half a century to grow below Baltimore has been removed. We're talking about uh, grease from the sewer pipe. News outlets report the city's public works department used a camera, pressure washer, and truck-mounted industrial vacuum to clear the mass of curdled grease, wet wipes, and other waste. Uh, Workers resorted to the uh, strategy Monday after they'd begun scraping pieces off last month. The notorious glob was found clogging up to 85% of a 24-inch pipe near Penn Station. It uh, blamed... It's rather blamed for causing more than a million gallons of sewage to overflow into the Jones Falls stream. It's the culmination of objects caked along a, a pipe's walls that shouldn't go down drains. So be careful what you're what you're uh, putting down a drain. Pat Boyle, the public works, says we can't treat our toilets like trash cans. And apparently that was the case. They're calling it a fatberg, like an iceberg. Yeah. Uh, and it was primarily or predominantly grease, but there were other things in there as well. Wet wipes being among them. Even though uh, many mm. of the, much of the packaging says that they're flushable, they don't really flush. Uh, they may flush, but they don't. I've heard that they yeah. don't decompose. Thank you. That's yeah. that's what they don't do. Well, I thought this was rather um, interesting. A, a Miami area congressional candidate says that she was abducted by aliens when she was seven. And 10 years later, it happened again. Real aliens, as in saucer flying extraterrestrials, uh, supposedly took her into their spacecraft and talked to her about a series of things that would happen. She recounted to two TV interviews posted on YouTube. Uh, and they have all happened point to point, she went on to say. Extraterrestrials might not be the word I would use, but the 59-year-old is one of several candidates vying to succeed outgoing Representative Ileana Leighton, a Republican out of Florida, uh, in one of the Spanish-language TV interviews, which aired on American TV in 2009. It's unclear when the other clip aired. The aliens weren't green little men with antennas or buggy eyes, she told the television station, both uh, female journalists uh, with long uh, lustrous blonde hair that the aliens looked just like you. <laughs> that had been flattering to the interviewers. <laughs> you look just like the aliens who uh, who abducted me. The mother of um, two, a former Republican National Committee Hispanic Outreach Director and mother-in-law of Jared Agin, the vice president of Pence's deputy chief of staff, said the ET uh, visits began when she was seven. The aliens appeared before her and uh, telepathically told her to walk outside and it goes on from there. But she's running for uh, for Congress and one could argue that she will fit right in yeah, or that she is. is probably a bad yeah. idea. I, I'm not sure which, but uh, she recently told the Miami Herald, which reported on her seemingly outlandish claims on Monday, that she's a strong believer that there is life beyond planet Earth and she insists she's not the only person 
who has seen UFOs. There is life beyond planet Earth, but um, I think she needs to talk to somebody who can clarify what that uh, life may actually you, you look at the people be. who get elected today, and you're right. She she'll may fit, fit right fit in. in. She just might. All right, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on a fun Friday afternoon. I hope you've had a, an occasion to smile oh, once or ball. twice. I've <laughs> loved you, every moment of it. Why are you rolling your eyes, Clark? I'm not. <laughs> we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. All right, you're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. And while I know that is distressing, it's sad, it's sorrowful, we'll be back on day. Clark is nodding his head as if to contradict what I'm saying, but I know in his heart of hearts, what he really means is yes, it's sad for us all. I want to give you a quick look at some of the things we're working on for next week on Monday. Uh, planning to talk with Jeff Kinley. He's the author of The End of America, and it has a question mark, Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. So we'll take a look at uh, his analysis of where we stand as a nation in view of um, uh, biblical truth. And on Tuesday, I'm looking forward to talking with Clark Tanner. Yeah, you know Clark Tanner, who was the pastor at Beaverton Christian Church for many years. He's been in ministry for, what, about 30, 40 years probably closer to 30. Anyway, he is currently the regional executive director for the Northwestern region of Pastor Serve. I happened to see him for the first time since he and his uh, wonderful wife, Glennie, moved away at the Pastor Appreciation Breakfast about a week ago. Is that a week ago? Anyway, and uh, we were able to catch up, and so I invited him to come and bring us up to date on the work that he is now doing. They're back in the the Beaverton area, and uh, we'll talk with him about that. We're also working on a conversation with Matt Stanford, who is the author of Grace for the Afflicted, A Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. And that's, I believe, is scheduled for Thursday. We're working on some other things as well, but wanted to at least let you know about those things. By the way, Clark Tanner, uh, I think we're going to talk with him on... On Tuesday. So if you, like me, are a fan, you might want to mark your calendars. He'll be with us on Tuesday. And again, he is currently the Regional Executive Director of Northwest Region uh, for Pastor Serve. So he is pastoring pastors. Uh, looking forward to that conversation. Well, they're calling it an atmospheric river. It's an atmospheric river over the Pacific Northwest. It's expected to dump heavy rain and snow over the region in the coming days. I've never heard that phrase before, atmospheric river. It sounds relatively ominous. But the weather pattern brought gusty winds, broke daily rainfall records in Seattle on Wednesday, brought it uh, before it moved rather into western Oregon on Wednesday night. The National Weather Service reported over the next several days we can expect storms uh, to dump about two inches of rain in the Portland area, three to six inches of rain on higher terrain in southwest Washington and northwest Oregon. So this atmospheric river is uh, making its way our direction. An atmospheric river is the name meteorologists have given a slow-moving, concentrated channel of moisture in the air. Ooh, it still sounds ominous. That's according to the National Weather Service, the meteorologist Paul Tolleson. Rivers typically produce heavy downpours, are responsible for as much as half of the West Coast's precipitation between October and April. Two atmospheric rivers will move over Oregon, the first uh, today and the second arriving over the next weekend, uh, uh, over the weekend, rather. As much as three quarters of an inch of rain is expected to fall before today has ended in the Portland area. The storm is going to bring more rain to other parts of the state, Tolleson said. Again, he is the... um, uh, National Weather Service meteorologist. Um, he went on to say that today from two to four inches are expected to fall in the Cascades and at the Oregon coast. Here in the Willamette Valley, about 1.2 
five inches, just one and a quarter inches are expected, and that's just the beginning. The second atmospheric river will be stronger than the first. We'll bring more rain beginning on Saturday. It looks like it's going to be pretty big rain uh, for the weekend. Storms in Oregon will bring two to six inches of rain. Up to two inches are expected in Portland over the weekend. In the Willamette Valley, about uh, uh, three quarters of an inch to one and a half inches of uh, rain could fall. High elevations in southwest Washington and northwest Oregon uh, will be hit the hardest with meteorologists predicting up to six inches this weekend. So it's going to be pretty wet. Uh, the heavy rainfall could trigger landslides, debris flows in uh, burn scarred areas uh, from earlier wildfires. So that is definitely something to look for. The Chetco Bar Fire burn area in uh, south, southern Oregon is under flood watch. Uh, today. Landslides are also possible in the Eagle Creek Fire area in the Columbia River Gorge and the Whitewater Fire area in the Cascades, the Weather Service said. So keep your ears open for any warnings about or closures that may occur as a consequence. Uh, despite the storms, meteorologists don't anticipate any major flooding. Smaller rivers and creeks may see some minor flooding, the Weather Service says, particularly in areas where uh, storm drains may be blocked. Still, Oregonians should brace themselves for a wet weekend ahead. Everybody's going to see a lot of rain. So that's, I suppose, not really news. It's not much of a surprise, but this particular uh, reintroduction into the very wet, cold Oregon and southwest Washington that we know is officially upon us. Meanwhile, we learned today that about 23,000 gallons of storm water and sewage flowed into the Willamette River um, uh, Thursday evening, according to Portland's Bureau of Environmental Services. Heavy rains caused the combined sewer overflow from a pump station at Southeast Alder Street and Water Avenue, the Bureau said. The overflow started at about 7.32 p.m., stopped 14 minutes later. These kinds of overflows are about 80% stormwater, 20% sewage, but does it really matter? 20%, 5%, 3%, it's still pretty icky. The Bureau advises people to avoid contact with the river from the Morrison Bridge to the Columbia River, a confluence for about two days because of the uptick in bacteria in the water. The pump station, which uh, is soon going to be upgraded, also overflowed uh, for four minutes last month. So this is something we've had to deal with. But the upgrade, we're told, is on its way. The pump station was built in 1952. It's scheduled to be taken offline later this month for two years of construction. The upgrades are going to improve reliability, increase pumping capacity, prevent sewage releases into buildings and streets, as well as overflows to the river. Now, we were uh, talking some weeks ago about a plan that would block off a certain area of the Willamette River for recreation. And it seems to me that would be absolutely absolutely essential um, if we uh, if we want to see people actually in the water uh, enjoying and recreating uh, by design some storm water and sewage can overflow during especially heavy storms but Portland completed the 1.4 billion dollar big pipe project to cut down on combined sewage overflows in 2011 the bureau said there were an average of 50 overflows into the river each year before the project was finished now we see fewer of them but we still do occasionally see them. And finally, NOAA uh, is leaning towards a cooler, cooler than normal winter, uh, a little undecided on how wet it's going to be, according to seasonal outlooks that were issued today. Over the past few months, we've watched the El Nino-La Nina forecast for this winter change from neutral, which is uh, normal sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific, to a 55 to 65 percent chance of La Nina, that's below normal sea surface temperatures. Now, if you're a skier or a snowboarder, that uh, that change um, should have uh, made you a bit excited. La Nina winters tend to have more and better snow. 
Um, this was uh, partly confirmed uh, by NOAA today when the Climate uh, Prediction Center issued its seasonal outlook for its coming winter. It calls for December through February. Uh, which is a meteorological winter, to most likely have below normal temperatures, but equal chances of above normal or below normal precipitation. This is a forecast I could have come up with. It's going to be this way, but it could very likely be the other way as well. So (laughs) Uh, the outlook for the three-month period of January through March does call for above normal precipitation. So at least that's something we can say uh, is uh, certainly going to happen. Um, first of all, this is uh, no guarantee of a great ski season, says one um, a meteorologist at NOAA. But it does mean that Mother Nature, as they refer to God's creation, is loading the dice for a winter whose average temperatures will be below normal and whose rainfall may, especially later in the season, be above normal, hopefully not as wet as last winter, which you might recall was also quite snowy and cold. Um so that tells us very little about what to expect, but we do have some idea that uh, it's going to be wet and cold and who knows what else uh, in between. Uh, once again, I want to remind you on Monday, we're going to talk with Jeff Kinley. He's the author of The End of America, Bible Prophecy and a Country in Crisis. The book is published by Harvest House. He'll join us on Monday by phone. And then Clark Tanner, who is the pastor of Beaverton Christian Church back in the metro area. He's going to talk with us from his new position as regional executive director of the Northwest region of Pastor Serve. Uh, and then um, Matt Stanford will join us on uh, Thursday. The book we'll be talking about is Grace for the Afflicted, a Clinical and Biblical Perspective on Mental Illness. That's all coming up next week. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blend, who is vacationing for producing today's program, sort of, kind of. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your fun Friday. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.